1: Emily, Emily, can you hear us? I first talked to Emily Feng last year. Maybe she doesn't have her headphones on. She had just entered the world of radio as NPR's Beijing correspondent.
2: Oh, Greg, hi.
1: Hey there.
2: I haven't done this before, so um, Ops kindly helped me set it up.
1: Ops are the people who do so much behind the scenes here at NPR, including training our reporters to use the equipment.
2: Yeah, I did a booth training a few days ago, but I seem to have forgotten everything beyond just simply turning on the mic.
1: (laughs) Well, the mic is on, and that's the most important part. Cool. Emily reached out to us because she became fascinated with this video that had surfaced on Twitter and was being shared by all the activists she knew.
2: Yeah, so I first noticed this video sometime in April last year from a Chinese student studying abroad in Taiwan. And in the video, he was criticizing the Chinese government back home.
1: And he's talking from the grounds of a Taiwanese university about China.
2: Yes. Yes. He uh, says that he opposes China's president, Xi Jinping, that he thinks the Communist Party is an awful thing and they've done horrible things to China. It's a live stream video, so it's really low quality. And he's covered his entire head with a cloth so that you can't see his face at all. He's concealing his identity because criticizing China's leadership is very, very dangerous. You invite retaliation against all of your loved ones and anyone you've associated with personally in your life. You risk losing your job or your place at university. I mean, literally within hours, his WeChat account was closed down and he was getting all of these um, really threatening messages saying, where are you? Who are you? Very shortly thereafter, he posts another video on Twitter in which he does not have his face covered. And he he looks like a Korean pop star, like he has a well-coiffed hairstyle and these big round glasses and a baby face.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
2: And he's talking to the camera almost as if this is like a video oh. diary of his. Uh, welcome. Welcome to SOS. Hey, everyone. Welcome. He kind of has this nervous... Last, he fully states his identity, his name, where he's from. what's his name? Li Jiabao.
1: Li, Li?
2: Li Jiabao. So I was intrigued because he didn't fit the profile of the normal Chinese activist. For example, they're a human rights lawyer, and they've been defending a number of sensitive cases. So their name probably has popped up before in other stories that I've covered, but This guy was just a regular college student from a blue-collar family. And the other activists I talked to had no idea who he was, and that definitely struck people on social media, both in and outside of China as well as Taiwan, as strange.
1: What do you mean by strange?
2: It doesn't fit into a cost-benefit analysis of self-preservation. Why would anyone do something like this? And if you were to do something like this, wouldn't you think it out a little bit more?
1: I mean, I guess I would say, you know, when you're young, you post things without thinking. I mean, you you do that. But I guess you're saying, no, not in China. You don't do that. You just everybody knows not to do that.
2: No, you don't see videos like this very often, as in you don't see young Chinese people standing up and saying politically charged things. The big criticism of China's upcoming millennial generation is they were born in a time of relative to extreme economic prosperity They've never known a free worldwide Wide Web. They've always had their access to information restricted. And uh, they've, in many cases, been born after 1989. So born after the Tiananmen Massacre, as Li Jaba was, meaning they've only known the Communist Party and its current reincarnation. So these are people who don't have much interest in politics. And I think a lot of people on Twitter got excited that someone as young as Li Jaba was was doing this.
1: So you mean, your question was, why would he take this risk?
2: Yeah, why would an average guy do this?
1: And were you concerned that maybe he's not so average? Like maybe there is something going on underneath all this? Definitely. This is Rough Translation from NPR. With far-off stories that hit close to home, I'm Gregory Warner. Today, the story of a Chinese college student desperate to win political asylum in Taiwan. Something Taiwan has never officially granted anyone and which would strain Taiwan's already tense relationship with China. But underneath that diplomatic debate is an even trickier question. Is this guy really who he says he is? Or is there some part of him he's had to hide? Emily Fang investigates a story that becomes surprisingly personal when Rough Translation
0: returns. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
1: the question of what to do about this student, Li Jia Bao, that was not just an issue for Taiwan, whether to let him stay or send him back to Beijing, but it was also a question for Emily, our correspondent, on how exactly to cover his story given today's climate.
2: I was concerned about publishing something before I was absolutely certain about who he was, and the reason for that is right now in the US there is immense suspicion about China. And ethnically Chinese people. You have advisors to President Trump who are telling him you should ban all Chinese students from coming to the U.S. You have the FBI's current director, Christopher Wray, who has gone on record multiple times saying China takes a whole of nation approach to espionage and to theft, and they will co-opt any individual, no matter how young or lowly, like an undergraduate student, to steal technology and intellectual property and supersede the U.S., I wouldn't want to champion his case and then find out that he was a bad apple. That would be incredibly embarrassing, but also damaging, because it would show that it's really difficult to screen someone for who they are and what they believe. And some people might hear that story and go, you know what? We shouldn't even try. It's it's not worth it.
1: You mean don't try. Just send him back. He's a foreigner. That's it. Yeah. If he was telling the truth, well too bad for him but it's beyond what we can do right Mm. so then tell me uh so how'd you find him and uh how did he strike you
2: so i first found him on twitter because people were sharing his video and commenting on it when i first reached out to him i didn't think he would respond so quickly but basically within half an hour he got back to me and we had set a time to talk over skype uh I was curious just to know why he had posted this video in the first place and what in his personality and his upbringing had had made him do this when hundreds of millions of other people who may have grown up in really similar circumstances didn't do the same. He gave me a really simple answer,
3: which is that
2: every person is born wanting freedom, and he wants to do something in his life that's significant. But I almost don't believe him because it seems so, at best, idealistic, at worst, naive.
1: And at this point, what do you know about his background, like about his family?
2: His family is still living in Shandong Province, which is uh, in mainland China. He would call them, and they would say, "We can't talk right now," Uh, or he would call them, and um, they would answer, but they would be in a police station somewhere. And Li Jiabao would say that he could hear police officers giving his parents guidance on what to say and to ask him to come back to China. I called their home phone number. And his dad picked up and I explained who I was that I was in communication with his son who was all right and I wanted to make sure if they were okay. He simply said it's not convenient for me to talk right now and hung up immediately.
1: Wow, so what do you think is gonna to happen to Lee? Will Taiwan let him stay or are they gonna send him back to Beijing?
2: I found him in part because Taiwanese media were debating about whether or not he should be allowed to stay. Past his student visa expiry date. But the reason why this debate has taken an extra level of intensity is because the fears of a rising China have completely swept Taiwan. And the fear that Li Jiangbo therefore might be a spy sent by Beijing are um, at a real high.
1: Oh, a spy. That's, uh, that, that immediately, the, the tenor of the debate is, is he a spy? Yes. And how does that strike you? Like, play out the most believable version of the narrative where he's a spy.
2: This is a young student who seems completely innocent and therefore blameless, who has professed loyalty to the kind of democratic and humanistic principles that Taiwanese people have embraced. Freedom of speech, rule of law, one vote, one person. But he's actually a sheep disguised in wolf's clothing. He will use this exploit to stay in Taiwan, recruit others, and then pass on sensitive information or help Chinese agents infiltrate Taiwanese institutions um, on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. That is the greatest fear. Hmm. One of the big arguments for why people are suspicious of Li Bao is he live-streamed himself at Taiwan's Tsinghua University. There is an identical university with the same name in Beijing. They're not affiliated, but they have the same name. People automatically assumed he was in Beijing, mainland China, on a college campus somewhere, saying this very controversial stuff and thought he was incredibly brave. Then he said, oh, I'm actually in Taiwan, where there is freedom of speech. And people immediately thought that he was doing this for show.
1: And also, the university that he live-streamed from was different than the one he was attending as an exchange student, right? So... He would have actually had to go to this other university that happened to have the same name as the one in Beijing.
2: Yes. And the second thing that made people really suspicious was his accent. His accent didn't sound like someone who grew up in mainland China as he did. It actually sounded a little bit Taiwanese, but not quite. And so people were saying, was he trained somewhere to sound like he's Taiwanese and somehow trick people into thinking that he's from here? And then a third thing that really didn't make sense to me was just how detached he sounded when he talked about his life back in China that he suddenly had to leave behind.
3: He really is
2: oddly unemotional about the fact that he has not seen his parents and likely will not see his parents ever again.
1: Why did that seem odd to you?
2: One thing that was very hard for me Mm -hmm. to wrap my mind around when I first moved to China is that people kept saying to me, we're so glad that you've moved back to China, but I've never lived in China. It was just that I looked Chinese, that my parents were Chinese, and thus that somehow conferred this um, intrinsic Chinese identity to me. People also will say that about their hometowns in China. Like even if you weren't born in a place, if your parents are from a place, your ancestral home has always been this particular place. That is considered your home, even if you've never spent any substantial time there. So when Li Jiabao is all of a sudden throwing his family connections, his connection to his homeland, his entire childhood, really where his cultural roots are, to the side, I can't help but think to myself, am I being played? Like, is this guy just really calm in a situation other people would be freaking out in? Or is he really, you know, I feel bad saying this, but (laughs) is he really a spy?
1: a face-to-face meeting, and some answers
0: when Rough Translation returns. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how her team makes an impact. We always do what we like to think of as actionable science. So the work that we do makes its way to things like nutrition and physical activity guidelines for cancer.org, where millions of people come each year to learn about how they can better prevent cancer. To learn more, go to cancer.org. We're back
1: with rough translation and our story about the student, Lee Jiabao. Emily was not at all sure where to land on this guy when we talked last summer, but the months passed and she kept following this story until a few things happened. First, she actually got to Taiwan to meet him. You live here? Uh, yeah, I live here.
2: When I met him, he was way shorter than I expected, even more adorable than I expected. He He definitely seemed younger than I thought. His apartment is in this quiet part of Taipei, Taiwan's capital city. He lives on the ground floor with two other roommates and the first thing you notice when you walk in is the clutter but none of the stuff is his
3: oh i love i in this room he
2: showed me his bedroom it it is very small so small that he's barely fit a mattress in there what 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 is yours and what is what was already here Mm, he's only bought this pillow and this reading lamp in the months that he's been in taiwan um, he's living in (laughs) close to poverty and he's all alone in this society that hasn't yet accepted him.
3: Uh, you know, <laughs> life is uh, always alone.
2: As far as I can tell, um, he hasn't made close friendships in, in Taiwan. And so I asked him, aren't you homesick?
3: And he said, no.
2: Homesickness is for people who cannot assimilate. It's only when you don't feel like you fit in that you start to miss the things that are familiar.
1: Does he feel like he fits in? Um,
2: I mean, he he feels like he can fit into Taiwanese society, but he's not optimistic anymore that Taiwan will accept him.
1: This brings us to the second thing that had changed in Lee's life. Taiwan was having a presidential election. <laughs> that election was the reason that Emily was in Taiwan.
2: I feel like every Taiwanese election feels like... Um, life or death to the Taiwanese. But this year, they said it was particularly existential. It was all taking place as the protests in Hong Kong were getting more and more intense. Hong Kong wants to sign this bill that can send suspected criminals back to mainland China. Hong Kong's people don't agree with that and they start protesting. And the same issues that are happening in the Hong Kong protests are now playing out in Taiwan's presidential elections. And the question of whether to accept asylum seekers had become a major campaign issue. So I asked him, how does the election affect your visa? What's your situation now with the visa?
3: He says that he
2: was not very optimistic. He said it really depends on, on who wins and the political direction Taiwan takes. But he keeps saying, I don't have control over the matter. There's nothing I can do about it, so let's
3: just wait and
2: see. I keep prodding him because I don't quite believe that he's as calm as
3: he says he is. I certainly wouldn't be.
1: (laughs) And what does he think about the fact that a lot of people in Taiwan are calling him a spy?
2: Yeah, I ask him, people are saying really mean things about you, maybe even untrue. And he responds by saying, we're in a democratic society. People can say what they want.
3: And in fact,
2: after a lot of people piled on to him, he said, I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to mislead you about which university I was broadcasting from.
1: And what did he say about his accent, the fact that he does not at all talk like someone from northern China?
2: I asked him about his accent. He said, I watch a lot of Taiwanese movies, Korean movies, and I've picked up these accents from all these different things that I watch. So you can hear him. He says,
3: Isn't it ridiculous
2: that people expect a Shandong person to speak with a Shandong accent? Why, why can't they have an accent from a different place?
1: Which sort of belies a basic understanding of what accents are. (laughs) Right. I mean, you don't usually acquire a different accent just from watching foreign movies on TV. Unless, I guess, if you really don't want to live where you are, you want to imagine yourself somewhere else.
2: Yeah, so I asked him what he was like when he was growing up, and he said that he would always be asking why. why things were the way they were. And the thing that he still resents to this day is instead of nurturing his curiosity, his parents would always say, why was he asking so many questions? They were really impatient with him. And so I asked him if he was close to his parents and he said,
3: there's always been a lot
2: of conflict in our relationship. His dad would always tell him, why can't you be like everyone else? And then he says, well, when I got older, I started to think, Why do I have to be like everyone else? And that's when he says he opened the door to this new world that eventually led him to
3: Taiwan.
2: It made me see his flight to Taiwan in a different light. So at first, I was using the framework of this is a young Chinese dissident. He wants freedom. He feels suppressed in mainland China. So he comes to Taiwan. But then I realize he's a young college student who probably has parental issues, feels constrained by them, has big dreams and and ambitions. And in some ways, his flight to Taiwan is part of this normal, almost universal adolescent um, journey to, to finding oneself, to fully come into one's potential.
1: And this is the moment when he starts to make more sense to you.
2: Yeah. Actually, growing up, my parents would tell me all the time, thank God that we emigrated because you would not succeed in China. <laughs> I mean, ironically, I am in China right now, <laughs> but not under the circumstances of of having gone to school here and working for a Chinese company.
1: Why? Because you asked uh, just too many questions?
2: Yeah, I don't... I mean, it's not that I'm disrespectful of authority, but it takes a lot of sucking up to do well in china i'm trying to think of examples like there are very liberal independent thinking people i know who will still bow to social pressure and they'll make it work in their favor but they still they still conform so for example i have at least one gay friend who has gotten a fake marriage with someone of the opposite gender so they can say to parents, I've gotten married, when in fact it's a sham marriage. It's a friend of theirs, but it's totally platonic. Even if they're totally against the political system that governs China, they're against the social values that make people act the way they act, they still feel a connection to Chinese society. Their friends, their family, the people they care most about are there, and they want to be part of those people's lives. There's a strong cultural association with being chinese even if there are parts of that society or that political system that they don't like and the Jabal really struck me as a person who not only disliked the political system but also didn't feel that culturally close to being chinese like ethnically culturally chinese and was okay leaving all that behind <laughs> I asked him, oh, do you feel like you kind of ran away from your parents, that you, you abandoned them in
3: China? And
2: he says, no, I don't think I abandoned them.
3: He, says, no, I, I I abandoned them. Um,
2: he said they have their own lives, and from now on, I have my own. I mean, he is, he is kind of very like, quintessentially American in like, a great Gatsby kind of way. He thinks he's a blank slate. Like he can make himself into whoever he wants to be. And my understanding was that his accent is also part of his project of finding himself, that it should be somehow a product of his choice, not where he grew up. But to many Chinese people, he would be seen as turning his back on a very intrinsic part of who he is, which is that he's Chinese.
1: You know, I remember in our first interview last year, you were talking about Chinese millennials and how silent they are on the subject of politics or as activists, and you were wondering whether Lee's story might signify that there's a lot more resentment among those people than uh, you knew about. Um, But what you're describing in Lee's story is such a special case, not maybe in his politics, but in his psychology. Like, what makes him so different might be not how he feels about the president, but how he feels about his parents or about his country, so, knowing that, how do you feel now about whether there are millions of more people like him willing to do what he did?
2: I, I think I think he's pretty unique. I don't think there are a lot of people who do what he did. He was able to let go really easily with very few qualms.
3: Oh, I think actually, we were talking uh,
2: about the impossible think, choices think
3: he, think he, he faced. Like,
2: either In he was an opportunist trying to create a political opportunity in which he could get asylum in a better country or he was a chinese spy here to ruin democracy in taiwan or the us
3: he was like this
2: is an original sin it's like a stain on who he wants to be like he wants the choice of being able to say I am Chinese or I'm not Chinese. Unfortunately, everyone's already decided for him that he is Chinese. And at the end of the day, some part of him is a little bit Chinese, and he realizes that he can't just leave that behind.
1: Emily Fang is NPR's Beijing correspondent. You can follow her on Twitter at Emily Z Feng. Hey, before you go, a question for you. So this story you just heard about someone born into a culture that he doesn't fit, but also can't quite escape, does that remind you of anybody? Maybe yourself or somebody you know? If so, we'd love to hear that story. We might even use it on a future episode. You can email us at roughtranslation or leave us a voice memo at 202-573-7513. Again, that's 202-573-7513. This episode was produced by Aviva de Kornfeld, Derek Arthur, Autumn Barnes, and me. Editing by Nishant Daya with Sana Krasikov, Jess Jang, and Robert Krawich. John Ellis composed our music. Isaac Rodriguez mastered the episode. Aaron Register is our project manager. Neil Carruth, Chris Turpin, and Anya Grunman sit upon our high council. And thanks, as always, to you for taking the time to write that review on Apple Podcasts and telling your friends about the show. It really makes a difference. We always love to hear from you and your Rough Translation moments. You can email us or send us a tweet at roughly. I'm Gregory Warner, back again soon with more Rough Translation.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.